Well, I may look like a stranger, but hopefully we won't be strangers very long. So, will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts and minds of your people, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's so good to be with you. If you haven't heard yet, I'm Alex Farmer. Um, As of six weeks ago, I was consecrated your new bishop, and uh, it is so good to be with you. Uh, So it feels a lot better than when I was standing up there back in May, getting getting drilled on uh, answering all sorts of questions uh, from all sorts of directions. So but it is, it is great to be with you. Uh, my wife, Jody is with me. She's here sort of in a purple color, I don't know, and a black jacket. So, uh, and I'm glad that she's with me along with my in-laws, Ralph and Joan Daniel from across the, across the river. Well, I can tell you already I've been blessed because this morning as I made my way over Doctor's Inlet, I looked to the left and I saw this amazing sunrise happening. Now, I live in Gainesville, that's where the parish that I was called out of to be the bishop is, and that's where we're still living for now. And as I looked over, I saw that sunset, and I thought, well, praise you, Lord. That is something as the rector of Servants of Christ in Gainesville I would never have been able to see. There are not many vantage points to see a sunrise there, and so I'm grateful for, for that and just glad to be with you this morning. Also, just as a way of introduction, let me say that um, I am so blessed to call friend and colleague, your rector, Mike McDonald. Mike not only serves faithfully here as your rector, but I want you to know as your new bishop that Mike has served for many years faithfully in the diocese. He is an area dean for us, and I've just asked him to take on a new challenge, which is to be the dean of everything from here south. And I mean all the way down, right, the Keys. Mike is dean of the southern region of our diocese. For his, for his sake and for your sake, there aren't a lot of congregations yet there. But if you know anything about Mike and his vision for church planting, there will be a time where we have, to, we have to create another deanery. But so thankful for Mike and his work in our diocese as well as in this amazing parish at Grace. I've known about you for a long time. I've, I've been in the diocese since its inception. As a matter of fact, I was one of those who stepped out and left the Episcopal Church behind and helped form the new diocese. So I've watched Grace, I've watched you move into new facilities, had occasions to be here, and it is so wonderful to be welcomed again today as your bishop. I'm also privileged to bring God's Word to you this morning as we, as we continue to look at this journey through the, the book of Exodus. And it, it, it is a journey, it's a, it's a movement of God bringing His people out of bondage and slavery into uh, His promise of salvation. And so it's it's, it's in just a, a blessing to be able to, to speak to you about this chapter 19. Let me just quickly remind you of, of where we've come from. The, the, the children of Israel have been led out of bondage. They have, they have been out of, led out of bondage in Egypt. The Lord has miraculously parted the, 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 re, the Red Sea. He's brought them through. He's, he's brought down those waters upon the Egyptian, defeating the Egyptian army. He's brought them into the desert. He's fed them with manna. He has he is, he is instructed Moses to strike the rock and to see the waters flow. So as we used to say about our kids, they've been fed and they've been watered, right? Now it's time for them to be at rest. 
Not so, we know the children of Israel are, are going to be murmuring and all sorts of things that are happening in the future. Jethro has come, the father-in-law of Moses. He has, he has instructed Moses that he has, to, he has to delegate. He can't do all this work himself. He has to find ways to, to delegate authority. He's raised up these elders who will be so instrumental as God builds a covenant with his people. And he is on the verge of bringing them into this covenant relationship And here's where we find ourselves in chapter 19. The Lord brought them from Rephidim all the way to where they can actually see Mount Sinai in front of them. We think Mount Sinai is is likely at the southern part of the peninsula. So they're, they're, they're moving away from the promised land at this point. They're going due south. And they're in the, what is described in the scriptures as a wilderness, but it's probably more of like a a plain area that rises up to, it's if you will, the foothills of Mount Sinai. They can see Mount Sinai. God is bringing them on this journey, and now he wants to speak this word to them as the people of God. God called Abraham. He's made a family of Abraham, giving him these sons. This, these, this family has gone to Egypt. In the course of the time, 400 years of captivity, they have been made into a a a, a nation, a people group. They are now the people of God. And as Exodus begins, we we know that God hears the cry of his people. No longer is he just dealing with a man or a family, but a people. And this is important for us to remember, just to skip ahead to to why this is important to hear. The people of God is one of the ways we understand the church. We are in Christ, the New Testament people of God. And if you study that phrase throughout scriptures, it's one of those biblical themes that runs from Genesis all the way. It's building, building all the way to Revelation, that the people that God has called to himself. We are this morning gathered as the people of God. We are here to hear what the Lord would say to us. And so he speaks to his first people. He doesn't just speak to Moses. He doesn't just speak to a question or a problem that the people have caused, tell the people this or do this for the people. But now he wants to speak, if you will, a vision of his high calling for his people. And I think that this calling, as a matter of fact, I don't think I know this calling, is not just to Israel, but it extends into the New Testament. This becomes the high calling of God's people on us as well. What is the message that he wants them to hear? What is this high calling? Well, first of all, he reminds them of his grace. Young Micah did a great job of reading to us the Exodus passage, didn't he? And and we see it described here that that the the people are, are, are to remember that the Lord says, remind them that I have, that I have, what I have done to the Egyptians that I have defeated their enemies, and how I bore them on eagles' wings and have brought them to myself. Verse 4, God says, I have brought about your salvation. Remember, before the covenant, before any promise to obey, by by any, any measure of this is what you're to do, my people, God has done this. He has brought about their salvation. He's defeated their enemies, and he has borne them on the wings of eagles and brought them to himself. 
Friends, can I say to you that this is the grace of God in the Old Testament? People tell you there is no grace in the Old Testament. This is one of those places, and there are many, that you can point to and say, no, God's grace is here. God brings the people to a place of salvation from Egypt into this place well before they're asked to do anything, before even the covenant is made to them, and He has borne them on the wings of eagles. Now, doing some biblical study this week and over the last couple of weeks about this passage, uh, it was suggested to me by some of the biblical scholars that there may actually not be eagles in the Middle East at the time of this writing. And in fact, this may be a poetic way of talking about another beautiful large bird, although we don't necessarily think of them in the same vein we think of the eagle. This may have been a giant desert vulture. Now, Being a youth minister by heart, I've always tried to find something to put into a sermon that would appeal to a middle school boy. And if there is anything today's sermon that should appeal to a young young guy that's in the congregation, it should be the idea that God, in fact, is saying, I have borne you on the wings of a giant vulture. So take that home. If nothing else, there's something to, to latch on to. But the, but the image is, no, is not changed. This idea that God, has, 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 as a mother bird, takes her babies on the back of her shoulders and flies them to wherever they need to go. So has God brought his people salvation. God says, first, my people Know that I have brought about your salvation. I have defeated your enemies, and I have bore you on wings to bring you to myself. Remember that. And then, having reminded them of his grace and mercy, he calls them to obey his word, to obey the covenant that he is about to make with them. My Old Testament professor, Alan Ross, said that obedience is the evidence of faith, We don't obey to earn God's favor. God has already graciously given us salvation. It is freely offered in Christ our Lord. But our obedience is our our faith, is our evidence of our faith that we have trusted the Lord for that and that we truly believe He knows what is best for us. God says, if you obey my commandments, if you hear and obey my word, then I will make you, and he says three phrases, three things that he tells them in the passage. Look at them with me if you would. First of all, verse 5, be my treasured, you will be my treasured possession. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was perfect timing, by the way. And a holy nation... You will be a treasured possession, you will be a kingdom of priests, and you will be a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And God says, these are my people. Church, this morning, I want you to hear that high calling that the Lord brings to us, to be a treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests, and to be a holy nation. Now, the first thing to note is that if you ever look at a a picture, somebody gives you a picture digitally, or or they used to actually print pictures out, you may remember that. But the first thing you do when you get that picture, what's the first thing you do? 
you look for yourself, right? That's just naturally what we do. Is my hair straight? Am I smiling nicely? You know, you always look to yourself. And so it is that immediately we're drawn to to what is about us as the people of God, these three descriptors. But I want you to note that between those descriptors, the Lord actually says something that, that, that's encapsulated by these three descriptors. And, and what he says is to remind them that he is for all people. Treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And that should be the clue to Israel as well as to us that the Lord's high calling on us is not just for us. We're not the only person in the picture that's important, but we've been called out to be of use that God might bless all peoples. The very thing that he told Abraham he would do before God made Abraham even a family, let alone a people, he told them that through him he would bless all the peoples of the earth. So what are these three things? Well, first of all, remember that it's an outward calling to be a treasured possession. The, the word in the Hebrew is actually this idea of, of, of something that is of value to a king, their, their possessions that they had even apart from their royal position. So in other words, before they became the king or the queen, they, the things they had that were already their wealth that treasured possessions that's not just about their kingly position, but is their own private wealth. I don't know. My wife is a big fan of the British royals. I watch a little bit with it because it's how we, we, have, we spend quality time. I have no idea what is the personal wealth and what is the, what is the, the kingdom wealth of, of the British uh, kingdom, the British household. But, but in the ancient world, there were two separate things. And this word in the Hebrew is referring to that special treasured possession, that personal wealth of the king. The first piece of the high calling is that we're called to be that treasured possession. Now, I have a three-year-old grandson, and what he treasures most in life right now is his collection of sharks. He loves sharks. I don't understand it, but as a grandfather, I bring him something that has a shark on it because that brings me into favor with my three-year-old grandson. And so I'm faithful to bring him shark books and other sharks and all sorts of things. But when we play, oftentimes, I'm not allowed to touch the sharks. Pops, you play with this car while I play with the sharks, his most treasured possession. And there's this sense in which I sometimes think that he's trying to provoke me to jealousy by his treasured possessions. Here, look. Look at all my sharks, Pops. Now, I'm going to play with them. You play with this duck or this elephant or, or whatever else, or you stay here at home base while I take the sharks on an adventure. And it provokes me to a little bit of like, well, gosh, I don't quite feel as if I'm being included in this game. That's an immature way of seeing a treasure possession, isn't it, right? To hold it up. Hey, you guys should all be jealous because I have this painting or I have this, you know, whatever, whatever that possession might be. I don't know what you might treasure most in the world. But it occurs to me that as we mature in our understanding of treasure possessions, we, we want to display them for the rest of the world to enjoy. That's why philanthropists, extremely wealthy people, oftentimes will, will donate their artwork to museums so that lots of people can see them and rejoice. 
And I think this is the idea the Lord wants to get across to us, that, that his high calling on us is that we would be a treasure possession that he would display to the whole world. That he'd be able to say, this is, this is the people. This is, this is my character. This is what I do. I take a people that are no people and I make them my people. They are my treasure possessions. They are the apple of my eye. I care about them deeply. But not to provoke to jealousy, not to provoke disdain, but rather that people would be drawn. Because, of course, we know that our God is a God of graciousness. And he extends to others to say, you too can be my treasure possession. You too can be my people. So that's the first descriptive. The second is that we would be a kingdom of priests. Now, you don't know me very much, and I'm, by the way, that stranger comment at the beginning was meant to reference the gospel reading in case you weren't, weren't paying attention because you knew we were going to preach on Exodus. But, but, but Jesus talks about they don't know the voice of a stranger, but you don't know me. But, but my intention was never, not only not to be a bishop, but I really was very happy to go on in my business life in Jacksonville, Florida, in an insurance industry, and didn't have to have a collar, didn't want to necessarily dress up with the strange collar and, and be called father and all that kind of stuff. It was not a, a lifelong aspiration for me. And yet the Lord called me to that back in the late 90s and, and called me to be a, a, a priest in his church and now by his grace to be a bishop. But God says, people of God, that he's not just called a few of us to be ordained, whether deacon, priest, or bishop, but he has called us all to be a, a kingdom of priests. Now, you may be thinking, exactly what does a priest do? And part of getting ordained is that you have to endure priestly jokes, like you guys like work, like, I guess Mike worked like three hours a week because three services, right? You know, that kind of stuff. Let me tell you, priests do so much more. Clergy, deacons, they all do so much more than, than, you, can, than you can imagine, much more than what happens on Sunday. But, but what is it that a, that, a, that a priest is called to do? Well, from the ancient sense of, of Exodus 19, what, what did the, the people of God understand a priest to do? I, I think three things is what we see gleaned from Scripture. First of all, the priest's work is to teach the people. This is what God is like. Later on in the Old Testament, we'll see the priest actually explaining the law to the people. I think of like Ezra and Nehemiah. That when they come back from captivity, there's this place of needing to instruct them. Secondly, a priest is called to be an intercessor. How oftentimes, I saw it this morning out in the narthex, how oftentimes do you call upon your priest or your deacons to pray for you, to intercede for you, and know that they're praying for you even when they're not in your presence? And thirdly, making God accessible to people through worship, through leading worship, by, by, by leading in worship and being lead worshipers and helping you understand how we make a, an offering of ourselves as a sacrifice to God. These, this is the work of the priest. But here's, here's the high calling, people of God. Even in Exodus 19, the Lord wants them to understand that they are called to be not only a people, a treasure possession, but a kingdom of priests, that they are to be priests to the nations. 
as your clergy are to you, so you are to be to your neighbors and to the strangers that you encounter and your co-workers and your places of business. One of the difficult things of, of dying to once I was or willing to submit to seminary and went off to Trinity in 1997 was that I no longer could be in my office building where I worked with other people in the insurance industry because I found there was so much ministry to be done there. Right? I mean, people get real with you because you're their coworker. You're the person that shares breaks with and goes to lunch with and you endure the same kind of you know, shenanigans that go on in, 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 in the world out there in terms of like work and things like that. And, and, and so over time, you become a confidant. You become somebody who literally can speak about God to them, who can pray for them. Maybe I remember times in the business world where I was asked on a break outside to pray over somebody or pray for someone to show them how they can offer their lives to God, first in submission to Christ and then and then to begin to learn what it means to be a part of a worshiping body of Christ. Friends, from Exodus 19, the Lord begins to give this high view of our calling. Not just, not clergy, but the people of God, the laity, His people that He's called out. You're a treasure possession, and I want you to be a kingdom of priests. And then thirdly, the holy nation. Okay, and remember in the ancient world, there's no nation states at this point. There, this, is, this, is really a, this is really an understanding of like a tribe or a people group. We talk about tongue tribes, uh, you know, in terms of understanding what, 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 we're, what we're discussing here. And, and, but they're to be a holy people. And again, just like the way I was describing before how we can take a, a photograph and we can be so self-centered in that picture and not understand that, that we are called to these things not simply out of the world, but that we would be a blessing to the world. Christopher Wright, biblical scholar and a missiologist, has said that there's probably no better commentary on Exodus 19, this call to be a holy nation, than what is written in Leviticus chapter 19. The, Leviticus chapter 19, remind you, is where we get the second of the great commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, holiness does not look like holier than thou, wholly separated, never to engage with. Rather, holiness is, be, is to be displayed in holy action. How we, in a peculiar and a unique way, act on God's behalf. And so as you go through Leviticus 19, you see that it's about caring for our neighbor. It's about caring for the stranger. It's about caring for the alien. It's about caring for our workers. It's about not cheating in whatever work we do. It's about carrying on God's name in such a way that our wholly distinct character would be a draw to those around us. What a lofty view that God begins. Remember, they're looking at Mount Sinai. They've not yet been given the law. That's going to come in chapter 20. He's about to enter into the covenant with them. He's about to consecrate them to be his people. But even before that, he wants to set this high and lofty vision that they would be a treasured possession, that they would be a kingdom of priests, and that they would be a holy nation, that they would bless all the earth and all the peoples, 
This is what the Lord wants them to understand. But of course, you and I know that, that Israel falls sh- short of that. And perhaps even as you're hearing me say this, you're saying, Bishop, that, that, is, that is, is too much to obtain. Uh, there, we, we fall so far short of that. And of course, you, you know we do. I, I do every day. I am intimidated by this high calling, and yet am reminded of what a privilege it is that the Lord would invest in us and would see our worthiness and would give us this purpose in life. So what does the Lord do? Well, He, he brings us the gospel into our admittance that we, we're, we're no, we don't act like a treasure possession, we act like a spoiled child, we don't act like a kingdom of priests. We act like a self-serving priest, which obviously is mentioned oftentimes in the Old Testament. We don't act like a holy people in that we do holy actions, but we act as if we're holier than thou. Which is why, as Anglicans, I love the fact that we we include in in our worship a confession, a corporate confession, a reminder of how far short we fall. Yet Israel's failure sets up perfectly Jesus Christ's success. And just to remind you of the gospel, Christ becomes the Holy One of God. Christ becomes the kingly priest. Christ becomes the beloved Son of the Father. And so like His Father in heaven, Jesus comes and he offers us salvation from slavery. He bears us on his wings. He literally puts us on his shoulders and dies upon the cross for our salvation. He fulfills perfectly this high calling that God has for his people to be his holy nation, his kingdom of priests, and his treasure possession. And we rejoice in that this morning, amen, that that Christ has become our salvation, that he has borne us on his wings, and he's fulfilled all that we could not possibly do. But then to remind you, church, that in Christ, we can begin to live into this holy. Because of Christ, we can begin to live into this holy calling. One of my very favorite scriptures is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul prays that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. And I believe that God never lets go of that Exodus 19 calling and purpose and vision for his people. And that in Christ, he is about the work that he will see to completion, that we would truly be this holy people this treasure possession in this kingdom of priests. Peter, that complex disciple of Jesus, captures this idea in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Let me read it to you. Peter, in light of Christ, the Holy One, the kingly priest, the beloved Son, Peter says... You, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people of God's own possession, that you may obtain the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, this morning, I want to remind you, I want to encourage you that in Christ, we can live into this purpose that God has for us. We can see every sacrifice we offer to the Lord as a service of priestly service to Him in the world. We can conduct ourselves in a holy manner in such a way that, that the Lord is glorified and that people are blessed. I, can, I, could, I could tell you stories of, of the church in southwest Florida taking the time and energy to pour into men and women who've been displaced by flooding and, and windstorms of Hurricane Ian. And in those moments have been a holy people to the residents of Southwest Florida. And it will go on for months and months again. I spoke with a pastor on the phone and he, he wept as he talked about teenage girls going in and tearing out wet drywall, wet carpet, and dragging it out to the road that people would be blessed and that they could be prepared for construction companies to come in and rebuild whenever they can get in and do that work. That's what it looks like to be a holy people. That's what it looks like to be a kingdom of priests. That's what it looks like to be a treasured possession of our Lord. Not for ourselves, but that the world would see and glorify Him who has defeated our enemy and borne us on His wings and brought us to Himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.